0: Better way to do this let me show you a better way
1: Hi folks this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the survival podcast As always one man 's view of the changing world, the changing times and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tougher even if they don't today is september the twenty fifth two thousand and twenty, and this is episode two thousand seven hundred and 39 of the Survival Podcast and it is Friday 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 time for the Expert Council Q&A show. Here's what I've got for you guys today. What's up with the grand solar minimum? We're going to talk about that from a ham radio perspective and from the perspective of human impact with John Pugliano. And John's not talking about the stock market today. He is a ham operator and he's going to tell you about his experience during the most recent solar cycle as a ham operator and why it matters. And the concept that Could the Grand Solar Minimum have something to do with the COVID pandemic? Is that a 10-hat conspiracy? Not really. There's nothing conclusive here, but it is an interesting question to ask, and there's a really valid scientific reason behind it. I'll even throw a few of my thoughts in after you hear from John on that one. Tim, the Tool Man Cook, will tell you about the ins and outs of impact sockets and impact wrenches. Get it? Ins and outs of sockets and... I tried. Anyway, it's an interesting subject, and Tim will talk about it. Doc Bones will talk about the process of debridement in a grid-down scenario. Is that where you take the bride away from the groom and make him a bachelor again? No, debridement is something to do with wound treatment. It's not the most uh, it's not the most pleasant thing, but sometimes it is necessary. J.R. Haley will talk about the issues of storing loaded magazines. Michael Jordan will talk about end-of-year honey flow. Dr. Ken Berry will talk about the right lab work to actually assess assess your heart health, because most of what people look at is really not what we need to be looking at. And I'm going to talk about establishing forage fish and forage critters in a pond. With that, before we do begin down that subject list, let us go ahead and begin today. With a song of the song of the day, a a quote of the day. Hey, songs are quotable. It's, I'm in a goofy mood. I'm in a good goofy mood. Anyway, we are finishing up Buckminster Fuller week. We took that uh, day off in the middle of the week on Hump Day with a Mark Twain quote. But four Buckminster quotes this week. Today's is: Everyone is born a genius, but the process of living degeniuses them. I don't know if degenius is a real word, but if Buckminster says it is, then I will accept it. And I completely agree with this quote. Um, This is back to the kind of what Einstein said about if you judged a fish on its ability to climb a tree, it would be judged to be an idiot. But if you, you know, just Einstein didn't say the second part. But if you if you judge a fish on its ability to swim, it's a genius. No human can swim the way that a fish can swim. Not just we're talking about speed relative to size, but uh, agility how long you can stay underwater, the ability to maneuver, right? I mean, there's so many ways that a fish is swimming. It's genius compared to that of an ability of a human to swim. At least humans can swim, you know. Pick an animal that can't swim well or at all, like a chicken, and compare the ability of a chicken to swim to that of a fish, and the chicken is a moron. But if it comes to the ability to see really small, almost microscopic organisms and peck them with deadly accuracy... The chicken is a genius compared to the human or the fish. And that's really easy to understand. It's taking extreme examples, and that always is useful. If it's, a, if it's done to prove something, it's, it's a fallacy. But when it's done to, uh, to allude to something so that it can be better understood, it is completely valid. And that's what I'm trying to do here. So now let's take it to humans. I believe that every human is a genius at not something but some things. There are things that that person has an aptitude for, and that we are a species that numbers in the billions. We number in the billions, for good or ill, we do. With that type of uh, headcount, our diversity is extreme, and we need to stop thinking about diversity for this subject. With uh, the concept that the social justice warriors have, making sure you have one of each color in a a family unit on a TV show or something stupid like that. Uh, We need to think about diversity of thought and diversity of skill. If you take 30 people at random and put them in a room together and start asking them what they're good at, you will find that every single one of them will have something they're good at that nobody else in that room is good at, and that's just with 30 people. That's just with 30 people at random. And I guarantee you, I mean, I've never done it to prove it, but I guarantee you, you will find something. If we say, I want you to list, put down a piece of paper right now and list 10 things that you're good at. And I want you to really think about it, and don't put down things that everybody's good at, like, you know, breathing. Right? Put down things that you are really good at, that that you have some level of pride in, in the fact that you're good at them. I bet you we can go through those 30 people and take at least one thing off of everybody's list, and nobody else in that group of 30 will have said that thing. Now multiply that by the billions. Now, let's take, you know, in a country like the United States of America, 55 million children, let's cram them into a school system that is a one-size-fits-all system and then judge them on their ability to propagate through that system. And we are taking a fish and judging on its ability to climb a tree. And if we force them through that system and if they actually comply with that force and they actually adapt to that force and they actually do reasonably well at that one-size-fits-all cook-and-cutter establishment of what we call an education, I think degeniusing them would be exactly the terminology to use. Just my thoughts as we begin our end-of-the-week show here with the Expert Council. Let's go on now and hear from John Pugliano on the Grand Solar Minimum, ham radio perspective on that, and how it might actually impact human beings as well. With that, John, take it away.
2: Hey, TSP, we have an interesting question from Ken, and he's asking about the predictions of Valentina Varkova. Now, I follow her predictions because I'm a ham radio operator, and I'm concerned about high-frequency propagation, which is a phenomenon that occurs because the ionosphere that surrounds the Earth goes through different periods of high and low charge where it has a different impact on whether radio waves will be reflected back down to the Earth's surface. That's how we get high-frequency radio waves, which travel in a straight line. The way we get them to bounce back down to Earth is by reflecting them off the ionosphere. And the ionosphere is highly affected by sunspot activity and, as a corollary to that, by the solar cycle. So Ken really doesn't have a question, other than he's asking about an opinion on whether the Earth is going through a cooling period. Things are going to get really cold over the next generation or so and obviously the impact that that's going to have for the growing season and crop failure. Hey, let's look at the solar cycle that we just came out of, number 24. It was predicted as being one of the lowest sunspot activities that we've had in a 100 years or so. Uh, there's a lot of people talking about it would be or maybe the next solar cycle that we go into will be a grand solar minimum, and it will be as low as the Maunder minimum which the Earth went through back all around the late 1600s, early 1700s. And I can tell you, as a ham radio operator, cycle 24 has produced the worst radio propagation, I think, over my lifetime. And that was because we have had extremely low sunspot activity. And not only has this solar cycle affected radio propagation, it, it has had an impact on, on agriculture yields over the last five years or so, and there's even some theories that cycle 24 could be in part responsible for the COVID crisis. Now, is this crazy talk? Is this tinfoil hat conspiracy? Not necessarily. We know that when we have lower sunspots, not only does that affect the ionosphere around the Earth, but as a corollary to that, it affects the amount of ultraviolet light that penetrates the Earth's ionosphere. And so with lower sunspot activity, not only do you get lower overall solar temperatures, but less ultraviolet light penetrates the atmosphere and reaches the surface of the earth. That can mean a couple things. Number one, that may have a lower impact on the amount of vitamin D that us humans are generating in our bodies because we're not absorbing those UV rays and we're not generating the vitamin D. We know that vitamin D has an impact on our body's ability to fight viruses, and specifically the COVID virus. We also know that ultraviolet light kills microorganisms and viruses and bacteria. And so it's not a stretch to imagine that lower levels of ultraviolet light would have less of a deleterious effect on the COVID virus as it's emitted through an aerosol spray in the air. So humans are producing less vitamin D, and the virus can be more virulent in its aerosol form, and lasts longer on surfaces because it's not being killed due to the low levels of ultraviolet light. So has Solar Cycle 24 caused COVID virus? Well, I think it's a whole lot better of an explanation than blaming COVID virus on 5G. And maybe it's not such a coincidence that in 1918, when the Spanish flu was so deadly, at that time, we were also going through Solar Cycle 15 which was characterized by extremely low sunspot activity. Some scientists like Verikova, are predicting that we're headed into a very cold period over the next 30 years or so because of this reduced sunspot activity, and that's totally possible, but we just don't know. Look at the geological record. There isn't just one thing that affects weather or affects climate. We know that not only from the geological record, but even from written history. Yes, there was a Little Ice Age, and some of that was a result of sunspot activity. It was also a result of volcanic activity. And prior to the Little Ice Age, we had the medieval warming period. The point I'm trying to make here is that there's not just one cycle that affects climate on the Earth. There's factors like the Earth's tilt and the Earth's orbital rotation around the Sun, gravitational pull from Saturn and Jupiter, all these factors have effects on the Earth's climate. And some of these things can be 11-year cycles, like the sunspot activity. Others, like the Milankovitch orbit cycles, can take place over tens of thousands of years. So, yes, absolutely, these things can have an impact. But here's the bottom line, and this goes back to something that I heard Jack say earlier this week as well, has nothing to do with climate. He was talking about government and how people tend to blame their problems and their lack of success on government restrictions and on government regulations. And the same thing can be said about the prepper community and how people obsess about gloom and doom prophecies that may or may not take place in the future. You'll find gullible and paranoid people that are crippling and paralyzing Their success now because they're worried and they're planning for catastrophic events in the future which may never take place. What I encourage people to do is not worry about things that are outside of their sphere of influence. Don't worry about changing weather patterns or all kinds of things that may or may not happen in the future. Focus on today. Focus on making yourself better. Learn to make more money. Invest it wisely. Take care of your health, develop skills and abilities, and build a strong community. If you do those things now, then in 30 years, whether the earth is significantly hotter or colder, it'll have less of an impact on you and your family and your community. And that's all that really matters. Well, hey, Ken, thanks for the question. This is John Pagliano of Investable Wealth and the Studying Podcast.
1: So I, I just wanted to add to that a little bit more on the vitamin D issue. Given the research I've done on vitamin D, and and prior to this last 11-year cycle, based on the vitamin D levels of people in the Western world in the temperate climate areas, all I can say is it certainly could not have helped things and made them any better. There's no way, because I, I actually believe that the... The modern world is dealing largely with an epidemic and low vitamin D levels that may be at least partially responsible. As I said, partially, not responsible, but partially responsible for significant amounts of um, health problems throughout our society. And I I really recommend that you do your own research here, and I really recommend that everybody figure out what a reasonable supplementation for their individual uh, selves is and I can't go giving uh, exact recommendations, but I can tell you that the RDA uh, and what's considered acceptable and what you should be doing optimally for your supplementation of vitamin D is absolute total bullshit. Um, that if you do the 600, 800, or 1,000 uh, milligrams or micrograms or, whatever, or units, I'm sorry, in, international units of vitamin D, That are generally seen as safe and acceptable and all you need, and blah, blah, blah. It will not repeat, will not, 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 will never, ever, 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 never, 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 ever, ever move your blood levels of vitamin D at all, at all, at all, infinity. It won't do it. It won't do it. It won't do it. It won't do it. I have read way too much here. And I'm telling you, you can take a person, and you can take their vitamin D levels, and if they go up at all or down at all while you're doing this, it will be a direct result of solar exposure and what time of year you test their vitamin D levels and how much they get outside. But if you give them 1,000 international units of vitamin D every day of their life, for the rest of their life, it will not move their blood levels of vitamin D. It is that insufficient. That doesn't mean go take 100,000. It doesn't mean do this without blood testing. It doesn't mean do this without a physician's support. It does mean that you, I, I really recommend that you read The Optimal Dose, uh, a, a book uh, about vitamin D and, and a couple other books as well. And then along with your medical practitioner, and if you don't have one that's willing to look at this, you find one that is. And you, and if you want to, you do it on your own, but you absolutely test. You, you take the test. It's 60 bucks to take the test by mail if you want to do it that way. You make your own finger prick, do your own blood, and and send it in. You need to monitor it because vitamin D can be problematic if you get too high of a level in the blood. But most people, according to the doctor, I can't remember, is Summerlin, I think is his name, that wrote the optimal dose, he has had his patients on 20,000 IUs a day, every day of their lives, in the numbers of hundreds to thousands of patients for years, and never had a had a, a case where any of those patients got hyper got calcemia except for one, and it turned out that one was screwing it up and was taking twice the recommended daily doses. They were at the forty thousand I used. Don't go just taking that because I said that, okay? Don't go just taking that because I said so. Um, in fact, it might be thirty thousand. I you got to read the book, all right? got to make decisions based on science and medicine. But I think it's 30,000 IUs a day is actually the, the dose he had people on. And the person that ended up with problems was taking 60. I, I will add one more thing before I close on this and, and get on with the next uh, expert counsel segment on impact drivers and wrenches. Um, I was unable to find anybody taking that level of a known dose with any problems in any medical literature that I was able to find. And it is... Very much the case that when vitamin D was discovered in the 1920s, late 1920s, and we were heading into the Great Depression and, and World War II years, it was rushed through. It's not a vitamin, it's a hormone. They didn't know that at the time. They determined that the safe blood levels was like 300 nanoliters or something like that, to the, something to the nanoliter. I don't remember the exact spec, but 300. Uh, officially, the number is 100. And they just divided it by three arbitrarily to put a safety zone in it because they thought it was a vitamin and vitamins you generally very little love to, to be at a safe level or a, a sufficient level. And all that did was reverse rickets, which was chronic at the time. And if you think of what was going on at the time, it makes perfect sense. But I think this might be one of the most important supplementation regimens to add to your life that there is. That's all I'll say on it. Let's go on and talk about impact drivers.
3: Hey guys, Tim the Tool Man Cook back here from All Seasons Maintenance in East Central Alberta, Canada. Back here to answer more of your questions for the expert council. We're going to try and knock out two questions today, so let's dig right in. The first one comes from Andy over on Zello, uh, better known as TN Griller. He wants to know why a person should get an impact driver if they already have a drill and what the advantages of doing so would be. Well, Andy, let me tell you, I only switched to an impact driver about a year ago. For the majority of my adult life, I just used a 12-volt Milwaukee drill. The best way I can describe it is like going from a car with manual steering to getting a brand-new car with power steering. If all you've ever known is manual steering, you don't know what you're missing until you switch to a car with power steering. Now you can turn that wheel with a single finger instead of using all of your arm strength. I remember the last big job I did with my drill It was framing and sheathing in the base around a mobile home. When I was done, my forearms, my shoulders, and my hands killed me from pushing on the drill all day, forcing the three and three and a half inch screws to go into the framing. When I got the impact driver, I couldn't believe the difference. I could basically place the screw into place and the impact driver would do all the pushing for me. And why is that? Well, of course, drills are designed for speed they are used with a sharp drill bit that needs little or no torque to work their way into the material. Basically, they're designed to spin in circles really fast, and if any torque is required, it needs to be supplied manually, i.e. your forearms do the pushing. Now, impact drivers, they have a hammer and spring internal system. As it rotates, it builds tension in the spring, and then when that tension is released, it allows the hammer to strike, creating the torque. It's so much easier to use all day long, it's easier on the tool itself, and it creates less heat internally. Two other quick advantages, too, are uh, it's much, the, the impact drivers tend to be much smaller, more compact, hence lighter and easier to use all day. And they have a really cool, much quicker uh, chuck bit loading system that just takes your standard hex um, quarter-inch bit size, which I love. I've even started buying drill bits that have those adapters on them to speed up my process a little bit more. So if you didn't guess, I would say go out and get a reasonably priced brushless impact driver. It will save your arms and you'll wonder why you didn't have one your entire life. So this leads into the second question. And this one's from Tom in Florida. And he asks, do you prefer the detent anvil or the hog ring on an impact wrench? I've been looking at the DeWalt 20 volt impact wrenches, good man. And as far as I can see, there are three versions and he lists those three in the model numbers. I focused in on the high-torque model, that's the DCF889, because, well, I don't think anyone will ever say, gee, I wish this had less torque. That model's offered in two versions. It would seem the hog ring would be stronger and more reliable, but I feel as though I wouldn't ever notice a difference between the two. That said, I'd like to hear your thoughts on the difference between the detent and the hog ring, along with any other experience you might have with the DeWalt. Uh, the dual impact wrenches. Thanks a bunch, Tom from Florida. So first off, for those who aren't sure, what is the difference between an impact driver and an impact wrench? The main differences are the impact driver, of course, is for driving screws. It takes those quarter inch hex bits, like I told you, tends to be less powerful and smaller than an impact wrench. The wrench themselves are used mostly for automotive uses. It has a half inch square socket adapter on it, and they tend to be heavier and more powerful than the impact drivers. So with that covered, let's jump into Tom's question without hopefully getting too technical and putting us all to sleep. So the D10 style is like what you find on a traditional ratchet. It's got that spring-loaded, tiny stainless steel ball bearing that holds the socket into place. Easy to pull on, easy to uh, push back on or pull off. Now the more traditional hog ring style is the type that have a square socket adapter on it and then a hog ring on the inside. They're easier to repair if they break, but I'm not as big a fan of them holding on to the socket as well. Now, traditionally, this is the tool usually used most by mechanics, and most of the mechanics I've seen tend to have the hog ring style, because that is what they've always used. Some mechanics say the hog ring has a better staying power, that it holds the socket better, and then some I've talked to say... They only use the spring-loaded now because the hog ring fails too often. In my limited experience, I find the detent ball-bearing style holds better. It's easier to put on and take off the sockets. Whatever you're using it for, I just find it tends to work a little bit better. The hog ring supposedly is a little bit uh, longer lasting because it's easier to repair. You can just replace the hog ring if it wears out, but the hog ring wears out quicker than the ball-bearing style design. But when that ball bearing detent style does wear out, you typically need to replace the entire tool. Now, if you're doing any amount of automotive work, then an impact wrench is a must-have. I basically only rotate my tires, and I use my impact driver with a half-inch socket adapter. It's just powerful enough, but if you're doing any automotive work, go out and get an impact wrench because they're great. Unless you're a heavy-duty mechanic and you've always used the hog ring style, I don't see a need to have one. I say go with the detent style. You will not be disappointed. You'll get the same amount of torque for about a third less money. And as far as centering in on more torque being better, there's another Tim the Tool Man who always said, more power is better. So guys, thanks for the questions. Keep sending them in to Jack. Send them in on tools, landscaping, handyman business, being a solopreneur, or even prepping in Canada. If you guys want to see more of my opinions on tools, I just completed two videos called Five Tools I Wasted My Money On, so you don't have to. As well, my latest Tool Time gear review is on my new favorite toy, the DeWalt 7.5-inch battery-powered chop saw. Drop by the YouTube channel at allseasonsmain.com. check out the community of tool lovers and handymen that we're growing there. And as always, guys, stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week. All right, good stuff. Next up, Doc
1: Bones on debridement of wounds in an austere medical situation.
4: Hi, Joe Alton MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website, doomandbloom.net. Also author of books like the Survival Medicine Handbook, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, and Alton's Pandemic Preparedness Guide, plus designer of an entire line of medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. Medical professionals like doctors, nurses, and paramedics and the high-tech equipment they work with are the heart of advanced medical care. When highly trained personnel are unavailable, it becomes the responsibility of the average citizen to obtain medical education and supplies. Lack of knowledge and materials will cost lives in any situation where modern care isn't an option. Knowing how to stop hemorrhage is very important but the medic in austere settings will be required to do much more with an open wound. As a matter of fact, they'll be responsible for it from the time it was inflicted to its full recovery. Of course, it's important to know first aid and other aspects of pre-hospital care. Few of us, however, including most medical professionals, are prepared to handle the complexities of the entire healing process when there is no hospital. In today's medicine, few providers care for every medical issue experienced by a patient even generalists send their patients to specialists for specific problems in a survival setting this is no longer a possibility you won't have either generalists or specialists you'll have you therefore you the average citizen have to understand wound healing and the procedures that help a victim make a full recovery one of these procedures is debridement debridement is the removal of dead otherwise known as necrotic tissue and foreign objects from a wound Most minor acute wounds heal just fine with cleaning and regular evaluation, but more severe wounds, burns, and bed sores may require this kind of intervention. Debridement is a way to eliminate obstacles to good healing. Debridement speeds the healing process in various ways. Dead tissue inhibits the development of healthy new cells and makes the area susceptible to infection. Necrosis can also hide the signs of bacterial invasion. Debridement is rarely taught in standard first aid courses, let's face it. Even municipal courses meant to deal with emergency trauma can get your patient to the hospital, but little is taught for the days or weeks down the road. Despite this, it's something you need to know about. A variety of techniques are used to accomplish debridement, and more than one type may be used on the same patient. They follow the acronym BEAMS, B-E-A-M-S, and they include B, B for biological debridement. This involves the removal of dead tissue with special sterile medical maggots. Maggots are the larva of flies, and in this case, it's usually the green bottle fly, Lucilla sericata. They debride by preferentially liquefying the digestible, but non-viable, areas of the wound. They also ingest the bacteria in the wound, removing barriers to healing. One way to get your own maggots is to hang some rotting piece of meat in a bag with holes in it outside. Put a bowl at the bottom. A bowl is needed to harvest the maggots as over the next few days they drop from the bag. E in beams stands for enzymatic debridement. Special enzymes known as collagenases are applied to the wound on a daily basis. These chemicals loosen connective tissue that holds dead tissue from the bottom up. The lack of availability of these enzymes, however, in austere settings, probably limits their usefulness to the survival medic. Now, A in BEAM stands for autolytic debridement, autolytic debridement, the slowest but least invasive type of debridement. In autolytic debridement, a wet to moist dressing is used to help the body's own enzymes to break down devitalized tissue. This works better for smaller wounds with less dead tissue involved. M in beams stands for mechanical debridement. In mechanical debridement, some kind of force is applied to separate non-viable tissue from the wound bed. This is more aggressive than some other methods and may be associated with some discomfort. Different methods include irrigation with syringes followed by gentle scrubbing. Wet to dry dressings are another option. In this case, a damp but not soaking wet gauze is packed into the wound and removed when it dries, taking dead tissue and debris with it. The best material to use is cotton gauze, although debridement pads are commercially available. Other methods less likely to be available in austere settings include whirlpool therapy and, well, other stuff. Care must be taken to remove as little viable tissue as possible during the procedure. Then there's S in beams. That stands for sharp or surgical debridement. By far the fastest method Sharp debridement involves the use of scalpel, scissors, forceps, and other instruments to remove non-viable tissue. This is usually possible to perform at the bedside, off the grid. Surgical debridement is more aggressive, and today is done in the operating room, however. It removes dead material, but sometimes viable as well. The removal of devitalized tissue is rarely very painful, but living tissue without anesthesia, well, that's another matter. Debridement is a necessary evil, but many wounds won't heal without it. You must take into account a number of factors besides the wound, including the age and physical condition of the patient, any chronic illnesses, and more. You have to look at the whole patient, not just the whole in the patient. This is Joe Alton, M.D., that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Please consider supporting our mission by getting some of the quality medical kits, individual supplies, and personal protection gear Available at Nurse Amy's store at store.doomandbloom.net. That's store.doomandbloom.net. Thanks. And next up, we
1: have JR Haley talking to you about storing loaded magazines.
5: Hey, TSP. JR here with the Expert Council answering your questions on guns, gun gear, and all things firearms related. Today's question is about concerns storing loaded or unloaded magazines. Drew from Tennessee asks if one should be concerned about storing magazines loaded. Should you be cautious about it affecting feed performance or the integrity of the magazine body? And also, should you download the magazine one or two rounds from its max capacity? Well, thanks for the question, Drew. This is a fun question for anybody to Google You'll find all kinds of articles from reputable sources, what looks like reputable sources, and plenty of keyboard commandos and forums talking about this question. But hey, what subject today is there consensus on the internet anyways? So let me speak from first-hand experience of being a lifetime gun owner who grew up on a shooting range and around old men, lots of military training classes and exercises, and some secondhand knowledge from civilian firearms training school owners that I've trained with and trust. Keeping them loaded doesn't do any of the negative things that people say they do in any statistical significance. All these things can certainly happen, but of all the magazines that I've thrown away in rage or rehabbed, I've never diagnosed the issue to, well, I shouldn't have left it loaded for four years and unused. That's the reason this mag is bad. We're a lot better off putting in energy into doing the preventive maintenance on our magazines, like disassembling them, cleaning the inside of any debris or any solvents or oils that drip down inside, Visually inspecting for any cracks or high wear points in the springs, the base plates, the followers, the feed lips, and so on. If I do a solid round of preventive maintenance on a magazine, I really have no concerns loading it up and picking it up five years later and putting it into service. As long as the storage place is cool and dry and doesn't accumulate a lot of dust. As to downloading magazines, the only firearm I do this for is the AR-15, which I only load 28. This isn't because I'm worried about feed lips deforming. This has to do with how the firearm functions. When the bolt is forward on an AR, when you insert a magazine, the top round rests up against the bolt carrier group very snugly. If that magazine is loaded with 30 rounds and there isn't much room for the top round to compress a little bit down in the magazine, you have a very difficult time ensuring the magazine gets seated into its locked position. The top round needs a little grace to move in the magazine to ensure that that magazine catch engages and locks the mag into place. This is why I download to 28 rounds. Now, to be accurate, I don't know of any semi auto magazine fed rifle or pistol that doesn't function in a way where that top round presses into the underside or the side of the bolt. But the only one I've experienced issues with and watched wingmen and battle buddies have issues with is on the AR. AKs really seem to have enough grace and always lock into. Position very positively, even if the mag's fully loaded. I've never had an issue seating fully loaded mags into semi auto pistols either. So, for my pistols, I don't download them. And the last piece that you asked about, Drew, referencing tubular magazine fed firearms like pump shotguns or lever action 3030s, or I'll add, you know, internal magazine fed. Firearms like bolt actions or semi-auto rifles. Really, no change in concern on the mechanical workings of the magazine being full, stored fully loaded. You're good to store them loaded. You'll still want to perform the same preventive maintenance occasionally. One change, though. When you store a firearm with an internal magazine, where are you storing it? Because if it's in a truck... Or out in the workshop, or at the lake house or cabin you rarely visit, is there a chance for high humidity? These types of farms just lend themselves to being tucked away in a corner by the front door, or out in the shop, and you know, that's why I bring it up. So if it's in a high humidity area and being stored with that magazine fully loaded, this is what has a chance of getting us in trouble. Your ammo can start to get corrosion, let alone the firearm starting to get some rust on it. And there is something about centerfire rounds being placed tip to tail that really accelerates this for centerfire ammo. So be cautious of that. It's easy to pull a magazine out of the firearm and inspect the ammo um, that's in than it is to really unload a tubular magazine. And when something isn't convenient, we kind of tend to overlook it or ignore it. I had an old 870 Express in my truck for a while that was parkerized. I noticed it's starting to get some surface rust after a few months, so I changed it out and now I run a stainless steel marine version in the truck. But that doesn't exclude me needing to keep an eye on the primers and the brass, on the ammo corroding over time. I already know the humidity level is significant enough that it warrants concern. Thanks for the question, Drew. Get out there and get those mags loaded up. Keep them cool and dry. And rest your thumbs until the next time it's time to reload again. Back to you, Jack. Uh, The only thing I can add to that is the only
1: magazines that I've routinely seen become weak and failed to feed when left loaded, believe it or not, had nothing to do with uh, mil-spec type rifle. It's the Remington 760 slash 7600, and the same magazines are used as in the 740 slash 7400. And I think it's like the 740, and it's that same model. It's 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 up and down, been changed and made different a million times. The very old ones were the 760s and 740s. I believe there's even a 750 now, but they all use the same mags. There's semi-auto and pump action. Uh, very, very popular in the Northeast where I grew up and hunted deer, especially in 3006 and uh, .270. Uh, if you've ever seen the carbine model in the 3006 with an 18-inch barrel fired uh, with a .30-06 in it, the flame comes out of the damn thing about a foot and a half long. Uh, they're a great gun. Uh, I grew up hunting with one. They are a gun that whenever I find, especially an old one at a gun show, I really think about picking it up. Um But I have seen not once or twice, but I have seen multiple examples for some reason. And and Now, the last time this would have been a thing would have been in the 1980s. So I'm sure things have changed and how things are built and all. But I also think some of the semi-auto problems in that Remington line comes from those magazines and the weak leaf springs in them. And uh, it, it is – it is uh, like so what I'm, what I'm saying is I don't disagree with JR, but there may be certain mag- manufacturer magazines in certain situations where this may be an issue. And keep in mind, these are not high-capacity mags. I don't remember off the top of my head, but they're either four- or five-round magazines. I think they're four-round mags, four plus one, I think, is, is the, the – the, but they could be five. Um, so you're talking about – relatively low capacity magazine and that might be part of it again these were built for deer hunters not for people trying to stay alive in a foxhole only exception i can think of and i'm just saying there might be others out there like that next up let's talk to michael jordan about end of
6: year honey flow hey a mellow jello hello to all my fine fellows out there in the survival podcast listening area I'm Michael Jordan, the bee whisperer of a bee-friendly company in Cheyenne, Wyoming, where we educate people on bees, apiary management, and the making of meads. Well, the honey flow is over here in Wyoming, and this is phase one of what we talk about at the end of the year. There's three major phases at the end of the year to help winterize, and the first one is honey flow. Well, I'm always asked, how much honey does a beehive make? Well, a typical box that the M3 system is using weighs about 45 pounds of honey. That's right. We're using a medium box with nine frames, and we're producing an average of 45 pounds of honey from that box that we sell at anywhere from $5 to $15 a pound, depending on how much quantity is purchased, who is purchasing it, and what it's for. Many times, large granola companies that we sell to aren't going to buy honey at $15 a pound. But when I'm selling it at a bulk rate of about 2,000 pounds, I think I can sell it at $4 a pound to $5 a pound and still turn a pretty good profit. So remember, a medium hive box with nine frames yields about 45 pounds of honey. Now, we're also using a pergo frame which is an all-plastic frame. If you'd like more information on that, you can email me at abfriendlycompany at gmail.com. And what it is, it's an all-plastic frame. You stick the frames in, the bees fill it with honey and cap it. There's no wax build. Well, on the nine frames, there's a quarter-inch wax build on each side of the frame because we're giving them to make more bee space, which gives me a bigger wax product, a little more honey product, It makes it so that my frames are really nice when it comes to harvesting. Because I'm not using a hot knife. I'm using a scraper. And I scrape it, centrifugally throw my honey, and then everything else is collected. One great thing about a honey box is that when it's done being spun, put it back out and let the bees feed on it. Just take the hive box out 15 feet away from all your bees and let all the bees rob it from all the hives. Get them away from all the other hives, if you have some weak ones and stuff. This will get the bees from not robbing them but robbing the honey flow because once you steal the honey, the bees get a little agitated and they try to attack the weaker hives. So after spinning your honey, place the boxes outside for about, oh, a week and let the bees harvest on them. I don't like going more than four days on mine. Usually with the amount of bees I have in the boxes, they're usually packed with bees for about four or five days cleaning everything off. And by the end of the week, all the honeys harvest, and I just take my leaf blower, blow the bees out, and take the honey boxes home. So now we've probably got 45 pounds of honey from each box. Is that all that we're producing from a hive? We try to produce two of those boxes per hive as well as one of those boxes And an exotic honey. And when we talk about exotic honey, I'm not talking about, ooh, is it Bolivian oscustis red honey or the purple global honey? No. What I'm talking about is there's like five or six products that you can make with honey that's really cool. You know, and I'm talking about the mason jars with comb in it. I'm talking about Ross Rounds. I'm talking about chunk comb honey. You know, there's a lot of extra exotic things that you can do that brings a little more money. And gives a little more wax product produced out. So on a typical N3 911 hive system, we produce 45 pounds of honey and probably 36 Ross rounds, and that's what we produce per hive. Selling honey at about $10 a pound. Now, out of that $10 a pound, I have to minus about $2 to $3 of cost because a dollar per person that I used to, to help do it, and it usually costs me a dollar. For the jar and the labeling. So on that plus overhead, for every pound of honey that I put out, $3 of that basically is the labeling, the insurance, and, and all the stuff that goes with that. So I usually make $7 on a pound of honey, right? And when I sell it in bulk, I'm selling it $4 to $5 a pound of honey. A lot of people don't think about that when it comes to their honey sales. So the honey season has happened. We've had snow here in Wyoming where it snowed for three days. Temperatures were in the teens for a week, and now there is no growth. So pulling the hives away from the clover and saffron fields and moving them into the locations to winterize is great. When we do that, we pull all the honey boxes off. And the reason I pull all the honey is because not only I've got a great product, but some of the beehives are along the highway. And some beehives that other people have, and that's the reason I say this, are in the inner city. And the reason that they should harvest all their honey is that the bees spend all the time collecting a food source that they can eat over winter. Which is bad now, because it's got car fumes and exhaust, it's got neonicocyte poisons, it's got whatever has been sprayed in your local area the bees have picked up within a two and a half mile radius of that location. So I'm not saying it's bad. It's not going to be, you know, bad for them or you. But why take the risk? I harvest all the honey. Now there is some honey in some of the frames of the brood and stuff towards the winter. But, you know, on a honey box, I don't leave any honey. I harvest it all. And that way the bees don't eat anything that might be been a poison when they need it. I feed them a fondant. And in February March, I feed them a good BT tea to flush out their systems. And then we take welfare away and we make them go to work. And at the end of there, I harvest everything, and I go ahead and put them on welfare, and I feed them. Because I'm treating my bees. I treat my bees well. I keep feeding them. So on this first phase, we wanted you to harvest your honey. Hopefully you've got a good packaging idea, a good label, and something that's fun for people to see. An extra product, such as hogs half comb, chunk comb, or honey sticks, or something that's going to help boost an extra cell on the end. I also want you to take the time now to go through your honey boxes. Pull out the frames that are bad. I mean, we're using plastic ones, so if they look bad, we just scrape them all down and then put them in a dishwasher and then re-dip them in wax, and they're ready to go. Super easy, way cheap when you're doing it on a large commercial level. But the rest of you, if you can't do that, you should probably pull out some of the foundations and stuff and get them ready to rebuild. We always take our boxes after the bees have cleaned them and all the combs are done. We wrap the whole box in saran wrap and stack them. And that way nothing gets in them through the whole year. And that way you don't have to worry about wax moth or mice are getting into them or anything like that because you seal them and you stack them. Put a light in your honey house with a bucket of water and let the moth fall in the water. A bug zapper is always good too. That way if any bugs or anything get in there at night trying to harvest honey from from your mess with your comb but hey it's the end of the year and it's phase one let's get our honey harvested and let's get it packaged and let's get it out there so that way all the way until june of next year when we get to about february when we start running out of all that honey sale for christmas goods and stuff we'll be ready to go again so i'm michael jordan with ab friendly company here in cheyenne wyoming and we were talking about honey production where you're probably yielding about $400 in honey per hive at this time. Hey, thanks for listening, and if I can help any more, just reach out. We have our Instagram, our YouTube, our Facebook, or catch us and ask us questions right here at abfriendlycompany at gmail.com. I'm Michael Jordan. Hey, buy your honey from a beekeeper you respect. Get it from a small cottage industry and let people start something to make a little income to help out and all. And remember, this is the best time. Help your fellow man. because one day, you're going to need help. Next up, have Dr. Ken Berry, who also has
1: the uh, item of the day position today. We'll talk about after my segment, but uh, he's got a question here on heart health and labs for heart health. If, uh, Just simply looking at raw cholesterol numbers is not what we should really be doing. Ken, take it away.
7: Hello, Jack Spearco and all my TSP friends. This is Dr. Ken Berry answering a question today for Jerry. Jerry says, since we know that cholesterol is not an indicator of heart health, what should we be doing to get a reading on the health of our hearts? This is an excellent question. Jerry, let's break this down. So first of all, the lab tests and the the imaging tests that you really need for a thorough look at your overall heart health are a hemoglobin a1c a c peptide and these two are going to look at your overall blood sugar metabolism and your overall insulin metabolism these are probably the two most important markers for your overall metabolic health and your heart health as well. You want to get a lipid panel checked, but you don't care about the total cholesterol and the LDL cholesterol. What you really care about is that your triglycerides are normal and that your HDL cholesterol is normal. So you want a low triglyceride level and a high HDL cholesterol level and you can comfortably ignore what your total cholesterol level is and your LDL cholesterol level. Next, I would get a GGT. This is going to give you indication about liver health, but also a little bit heart health as well. And then if you want to do an imaging study to actually look at the arteries of your heart and see if you have calcium buildup and signs of damage, then there is a test called a CAC, which is a coronary artery calcium score. This is a very quick cat scan and so there is some radiation involved but it's not much and and doing this scan every few years I think will help to um keep your doctor relaxed and calm so they don't freak out with you eating all this bacon eggs b- beef and butter uh, also might keep a spouse calm down so you want to get a CAC score and your doctor has to order that more and more insurance companies are paying for it but if your insurance company Refuses to pay for it. They usually cost somewhere between 100 bucks and 150 bucks if you just pay cash. So getting that every few years to to keep everyone calm and relaxed might be a good investment. <clears throat> uh, the coronary artery calcium score looks at calcium buildup in your heart's arteries, and if you have a low score, then you can rest rest assured that you are not causing any damage by eating the proper human diet. If you have a high score, then I would recommend repeating the CAC in 12 months to see if your score has stayed the same or actually went down. Most people eating a ketogenic diet or a carnivore diet or somewhere in between, their CAC score will actually go down each year or stay the same, whereas the average person eating the average American's diet, their CAC score is going to go up anywhere from 5 to 20 percent each year. Hope this question, this answer helped Jerry and maybe a few other listeners as well. This is Dr. Barry. I'll talk to you guys next time. All
1: right. Uh, mine today, I believe, has been uh, generated by my recent talk on aquaponics and hydro- uh aquaculture and ponds and things like that. Uh, this comes from Dave. Dave says, I have maybe an acre sized natural pond in zone six. It has catfish, bluegills, and bass. I'm very interested in stocking baitfish or shrimp. I can get bait fish from my local lake, but I'm really interested in shrimp. Where, should, when should I buy them, and when would they even and would they even survive? I'm guessing in spring, so winter isn't a factor. Please advise. Also, love the tote idea. I'm just wasn't just wasting my top pond's potential. Okay, so here's the thing. My honest answer is I don't know, but I'm going to guess, and I'm going to try to help, and I'm going to try to give you some different options. I would say, first of all, if you want shrimp as forage, maybe we can do something. Maybe. Okay. I'm also going to say if you want shrimp to eat, it can probably be done maybe, but it will have to be a kind of like like planting a shrimp garden. You have to create some place for them to live where they can't get out of. You'll have to seed them, and then you'll have to harvest them every year before it gets too cold. There are freshwater prawns. Often when you see farmed shrimp in uh, a supermarket, uh, those are actually freshwater prawn. They're a type of shrimp, but they refer to them as a prawn. And there's a couple different varieties. One is this, this like Malaysian river prawn, and they get these huge, long, bitey uh, pinchers on that look really thin and look like they can't do much damage because they're so thin, but they will cut you like a razor. Uh, those are fantastic. Uh, they're also known as blue river prawns. Uh, they're like little lobster tails, and I don't think that they are a valid idea in your situation with you know a half acre, a acre size pond in uh, zone six. Just not they're a, a, definitely a tropical species. They can be farmed, but you're going to be better off farming them in tanks. They need to be uh, given areas where they can all kind of go into their own little angry hole and not see each other, or they will like decimate each other. Right, so they're 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 a challenge, but they're they're cool. I have a friend who raises them, but he raises, you know, a couple dozen a year. And they can be bought as feeder prawns. Most stores that sell feeder prawns for tropical fish, they're these little bitty things, and you're surprised at how little they are, and they grow in a season to, like, mini lobster tail size. But those are an idea, but they are not for this. There are prawns that are more like the ones you generally buy at the store that look like more like ocean shrimp. The furthest north I've found them being produced in outside situations is Kentucky. Kentucky's climate and some of Kentucky's climate is Zone 6. The the, the the question is not so much how cold for how long, though, with this, is how long is the water warm enough? So you can look at – I've got a uh, an agricultural extension uh, study. You can look at what they're doing and see the timeline and what Zone 6 are you. In other words, there's places where it's Zone 6, but – You have a lot longer period with the water above the temperature that needs to be than some other areas that are zone 6. Okay, so that you'll have to figure out for yourself. That may be doable, but again, I think you're in a situation where if you want them for consumption, you're going to have to give them some sort of protection. I think you want them for forage since you were asking about them in conjunction with bait fish. Here's the option that I'll tell you to consider, but I don't want you to spend too much money doing it, so you want to buy the cheapest ones you can get. The shrimp that I would give a shot at this to is the one sold in the tropical fish industry called Neocardania. Now, if you look up their cold tolerance, you'll see it listed anywhere between 60 and 65 degrees Fahrenheit on the low end. Obviously, that's not going to survive Zone 6 water temperatures. That number is steaming bullshit. That is not true. It's not true. And you'll see they can be lower, but only for a very short period of time. Also bullshit. Now, let me be clear. I think if you take neocardanias, and I have a bunch of them living in a little tank right here, uh, that are happily living in 80-degree water or 75-degree water or something like that, and they've been in there for a long time, and you net them out and you throw them in some water that's like 42 degrees, they probably will die. And I also don't think it's a good idea to put them into water, even if it's close to you know, a temperature they can handle easily enough, and have them rapidly descend. So spring, I think, is the ideal point. And I would monitor your water temperature, and I would introduce them into this pond. As your water temperature is not only above, I would say, 68 degrees, but it's on the rise. So now it's going to come up and it's going to come back down and they're going to have a whole season and they're going to make lots of new little baby shrimps and some portion of them are going to be stout enough to get through your winter hopefully and i think that might be the case cuz they can go down in the mud and the base and etc and the water if water is not frozen then it can only be so cold right You can see how that works. and I I was explaining this to my grandson and my wife today about water being unique in that it is the only substance that we know of that actually breaks the laws of physics in a way. Everything that we know of, the colder it gets, the denser it gets. And the warmer it gets, the less dense it gets. So hot air rises is one way to look at that, and cold air sinks. Water does this up until just around the freezing point, and then it switches, that's why ice floats. That's why ice floats. Pretty simple, right? If ice didn't float, we wouldn't have any life on the planet because water would freeze from the bottom up and we'd have an ice ball planet. And it would have never thaw out. Kind of interesting, isn't it? Because of this, as ice freezes, as long as there can go below the ice, get enough oxygen and food and all, an animal can survive if it can handle the temperature of you know 32 degrees, basically, in fresh water. In fact, 33-ish degrees, because when you get to full 32 degrees, the water freezes. So it can be freaking 20 below zero above the ice. The coldest it can be in the water below the ice is 32-ish degrees. How well they'll do at that temperature, I do not know, and for how long, I do not know. I can tell you that... I didn't actually take water temperature readings, but I had ice on my water and Cardania shrimp going crazy in my pond sta- uh, stack systems. So they can survive that temperature-ish. How long? I don't know, but I mean, it was significant here. And I will take some temperature readings this year. And I have to actually say, I think they did their highest amount of breeding in the colder part of the year. Now for you, that might mean they breed like crazy in like uh, March when the ice is melting. I don't know, but that's been my experience. They are going to be a great prey species for your bluegill and probably for baby catfish and baby bass. The key is going to be able to get enough of them in there to the point where they will be sustainable and not all devoured. So I would want to stalk them at about a time when you have a lot of vegetation for them to use to hide in. Or you may even want to create some sort of like sunken tote into your pond with holes in it that they can get in and out of. My, my concern there is that when I put them in something like that, they all left. So I don't know that they're smart enough to figure out, hey, stay in here and they can't eat you. right? And, and very small fish can eat them because they're little. But I think you can probably get a breeding population of them going. That would be, and that would be technically an invasive species, and uh, Pennsylvania Department of Natural Resources would probably have a heart attack if they knew you were doing it. But uh, it's it's not an animal that I can see causing a problem. So you make that own decision about your own property, your own way. There is a native species of shrimp. It's also very small. That may or may not breed for you in your pond, but should definitely survive your temperatures. I found evidence of them in the Mongahela River in Pennsylvania. If it can survive there, it can survive Zone 6. just say that. Um, They actually see it as an improvement in water quality, uh, showing that those shrimp can now survive in the Mongahela. These are known as the Mississippi grass shrimp. There are two grass or glass shrimp. They're both commonly called both. They don't look that much different. If you put two of them in front of me, I couldn't tell you which one was which, but they are a different species. One is really you know, really prominent in places like South Georgia, South Florida, um, Southern Louisiana, et cetera. And um, it will not tolerate the water temperatures that you have. And then there's the one that's the Mississippi one. You might want to be sure I'm right on that. Uh, but it will tolerate colder temperatures. If you can introduce these, and I would again introduce these at the right time of year, you should be good. I've found sellers doing them on eBay in the past. I didn't check for you today. You'll have to check for yourself. Um, They are almost impossible. The ones that will survive your climate, they're almost impossible to breed in fish tanks. Um, If they're in a large enough body of water with enough going on, they will tend to take over and breed for themselves and become very, very populous. Um, the southern species is a little more easy to breed in, in, in aquariums. It's not bred very much because it sells for like three cents a piece. And if you have a, a body of water they live in, you can literally take a net and just go under like grass and shake it and get tons of them. You used to get them for bluegill bait in Florida that way. So neither one of them will breed well in a fish tank. So you would have to acquire them, hope you've acquired the right ones, hope you've acquired enough of them, introduce them into your pond and hope that they take take root. And I would do that also late spring, uh, just, just my uh, observations there. With the Neocardania, what I would actually do is I would set up a fish tank designed to breed them, at least 10 gallons. I would get that tank cycled, and I would get them now. And I would get them breeding, and I would put them in there by themselves with nothing else other than some snails, because snails and them go really, really well together. And probably something like some Java moss or uh, Christmas grass or something like that, Christmas fern grass or f- Christmas moss, Christmas moss, is what it's called. They love that stuff um, with a sponge filter, and that would get them breeding. And when it comes to- that would give you from now all the way until let's say April, maybe late May for you in zone six, to start introducing them into your pond. And as they're breeding in your fish tank, you can introduce them into your pond, and they'll make more, and you can keep seeding them that way. And I would seed them all through summer and see if you can get them going that way. That would would be what I would try. And again, you're probably breaking the law if you do this. So I have provided this for informational purposes only. I will tell you that in my contained, not-in-the-ground tanks, which is totally legal here in the state of Texas, they are doing well. And they have gotten into my tanks that have fish that will eat them. And in all but one, I have confirmed that in even in that situation, they are in there, they are alive, and they are surviving. So my biggest pond, my Miyagi pond, probably has some in there. I've definitely put them in there, um, but I, I haven't been able to, like, you know, long after I've put them in there, seen one. In my uh, my 8-foot timber frame pond, I saw one just yesterday. Little red one climbing along the outside of one of the flower pots and eating algae off it in the water, and uh, I have definitely seen them. I put them in my top side of my steel frame ponds, and the lower ponds I never put them into because that's where there's like catfish and bluegills and stuff like that. They're in there. They have gone through the overflow stacks, down the pipes, popped out the other end, and there's lots of them in there. So they can survive in because of the way they breed. Once they get the population up. So that would be the advice I could give you on that. My last piece of advice. If you just want forage, there's a critter that's shrimp-like, that's delicious, that will inhabit Zone 6 happily. But you may not want it in a pond like you have because some species of them make burrows and some people don't like that. And depending on the integrity of your dam breast, etc., it could be an issue. But it's the crayfish. Native crayfish... And, of course, they have lots, lots of little crayfish and little baby crayfish come out, and then they are a forage crop. Uh, and smallmouth bass, which seem to love Zone 6, and deep ponds love uh, crayfish. So that would be another thing you could look at, but you have to decide for yourself whether you want to induce introduce that species to your area if it's not already there, because it's hard to believe in most Zone 6 ponds of any age that there are not already crayfish there, because sooner or later they will come in with, like, Birds on their legs, eggs, something like that. Let's uh, let's take another one. Actually, no, we're done. We have wrapped up the day, and uh, I want to remind you guys you can help support this show and the work that we do a couple of ways. One's by becoming a member of the MSB. If you want to become a member of the MSB? Just go to survivalpodcast.com, com, click on members, and fill that out that form and uh, set up your payment and your subscription, and you will be a member. And then use your discounts; you'll get your money back. Um, I heard from somebody today, just today, saying, you know. Ten bucks here, ten bucks there. Real quick, this thing pays for itself. Uh, so check them out today. Uh, at check me out today. I, um, what's wrong with me at the end of the day today? I'm, I'm going fishing, guys. As soon as I'm done with this, that's, my mind is probably elsewhere already. I uh, took the grandson fishing yesterday, et cetera. Anyway, join the MSB. I mean, something like the butcher box discount. Ten dollars per box per month. A one year subscription is hundred twenty dollars a year on a fifty dollar membership. That's, that's math that you can do in your head really, really quick, even if you learn Common Core. Uh, next up, remember, you do your online shopping at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Today's item of the day. Since we had Ken on yesterday, I thought it would be a good day to run. Lies My Doctor told me that's his book. I really think you should get a copy of his book and read it. I have a link to uh, the new listing on Amazon. Some of you were saying the old listing was going to a place you could only buy the Kindle edition. You can get the hard copy. This is a good book for you or to give as a gift. I really believe this book has probably saved lives in the thousands already. It may help save your life or improve the quality of it or do it for somebody you love. Do check out the book. The only reason this was not the item of the day yesterday when Ken was on is I had to run the uh, Anchor Power Core um, uh, 28,000 milliamp backup battery thing while I could because it was a lightning deal. On that note, this is a reason to be on the Telegram channel. I sold a lot of those yesterday. I don't know what big of an impact I would have had on a company like Anchor, but that product is now out of stock until mid-October. It is also back up to almost full price. And as I said yesterday when I brought that item out, it goes down to that $37 price point about three times a year. It is the best backup battery there is, and now if you want one, you have to wait, and you have to pay a lot more money. The people that absolutely got one yesterday were the people on that follow me on social media like Parler or MeWe and the people on the Telegram channel. Because the second that I saw it and I put it on the site, I put it out on those uh, broadcast channels. So Discord, MeWe, Parler, and the Telegram channel. Any one of those four you would have known. And the one where you absolutely would know is the Telegram channel. Because that's going to come right to your phone like a text message because it's basically what it is. It's just in Telegram instead of the native text app. I really recommend you get on one of those. Everybody that was on the email list got a notice about it. Whether or not it had sold out by then, I don't know. I don't know when it sold out yesterday. I just know that it sold out yesterday hard. Um, Over 200 members of this audience uh, got one of at least one of them. At least one of them. Some of y'all bought two. One guy bought five. Uh, I can't see who buys what. But I can see how many are sold, and I can see individual orders. So I know like one person bought one, one person bought two, one person bought five, one person bought three, like that. And one person bought five of them. I can see why. I got one myself. I have plenty of backup power. That was just a stupid good price. So my message is, one way or another, be on the Daily Mail, be on the Telegram channel. Somehow, let us be in touch with you. Um, Yesterday, I made a big deal about that. I bring you the item a day. It's usually like a two-minute or less little little blurb here at the end on, on the show. And I throw it in my stuff, and I just throw it out there, and it is what it is, and I ask you to support the show by shopping at t spaz. There are times when opportunities like that come up. There's been times with like Mora Knives, et cetera, and there's been times with items that I've found that have sold out hard, and uh, I don't c- control inventory. I don't. I don't have any inventory control on this stuff at all. I just make you aware of it, and it helps me by helping you. So please consider getting on some of the other ways that we can stay in connection with you so that you guys know about this stuff. All right. With that, let's wrap things up with our song of the day today. As I said uh, earlier this week, this is chill out week. These are all songs that are like on Jack's chill out playlist when I want to sit on the porch with the dogs and have a beer and just really not give a shit about the world. Maybe think deeply but not care. Be is that such a thing? I think there is such a thing, um, especially with beautiful weather like we're having right now. These are the kind of songs I like to listen to, and I brought you. I think with that kind of that, that bookend, about as much variety as I could so far. I brought you a country artist. I brought you a Motown an artist. Uh, I brought you a uh, uh, a uh, what am I looking for in the term there? Classic rock artist pop was sticking in my head. Van Morrison is not a pop singer, uh, so I brought you, you know, classic rock. I brought you Motown. I brought you country, Chris Stapleton, and then yesterday, I did something you, you probably expected from me. I Brought you Jimmy Buffett, right? Which is Buffett style, right? There's, there's not Buffett doesn't fit a style, right? And I brought you Changing Channels. He's got a lot of really great slow songs. And I was thinking about maybe another one of Jimmy's on a Friday, because Jimmy Buffett Fridays, yeah. But I wanted to do something different yet again. I wanted to bring you something that... Some of you all have heard this, because I've played it before. But I wanted to bring you an independent artist. We're back in the country. But this is one of my favorite songs ever. It's called The Grandfather Song. And it's by Cole Reisner. And the very first time I heard this song... Uh, Cole actually played an event at my house. He's he's a local artist. He, he's really really great. I, he's one of those guys that like, you know, the music industry's controlled because he's good enough to have made it by now, big time. If if it was just on talent alone, but it's not how it works. He is doing well for himself, and I'm sure COVID has been hard on him because he does a lot of live events. Plays in some really big uh, restaurants around here locally, uh, but he loves doing kind of like the house party thing, and it's pretty amazing to have a guy with this much talent play in your backyard for people. And we've done that a few times here. Um, the, the the stanza I want to give you out of this song, and the one that resonated with me instantly that made me think of my dad's my dad's father, my grandfather on that side. Uh, my grandfather was a coal miner, and. Uh, that's about the only thing difference here, because his dad was a roughneck. His granddad was a roughneck. But he says, my granddaddy was a roughneck. He did it because he had a kid on the way. He was never much into religion, but he worked like he owed it to God. I'd tell you that was true of both of my grandfathers in different ways. They, they, they came at life with that type of a work ethic, and I, I'm grateful that I think that it was handed down to me. But my dad's father, this is just so much more true of because roughnecking and coal mining are the same type of business. I mean, they're, they're they're both dangerous in their own ways, in different ways. You're not under the ground as a roughneck, and you're not up on top of a an oil rig as a uh, as a coal miner. But they're they're dangerous, and they result in a lot of damage. My grandfather had coal pieces of coal in his arm till the day he died. He he coughed up, you know. 20, 30 years after coming out of the mine, he would still on occasion cough up uh, black black substances from the black lung that had gotten into his lungs. But he never quit. He never quit until life made him quit, until he just physically could not go anymore. And during his working years, if there was a way to describe what he did, it was he worked like he owed it to God. A man that goes down into a dangerous coal hole back in the, you know, they're talking the 40s, 50s, 60s here, and has the, the boards on the side that hold everything back, give out one day and crush him, and gets back up and goes back down and does it again. That's a guy that works because he cares about his family and whatever it takes is going to be done. When I heard this song the first time, I I immediately had a kinship with Cole because of that, because it was so identical even being so far apart. You know, a grandfather working in West Texas versus Central Pennsylvania. But that same ethic, working like you owe it to God. And I'm going to tell you that I think that is the ethic that's missing in a lot of America today, a willingness to do everything that's necessary to get what you want, but to provide for those who you take care of as well. I know it's alive and well in the TSP community, so I thought it would be the best song to leave you with on a Friday. With that's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast.
0: I will shine my shoes this morning Cause I'm going to a funeral They will lay rest my grandfather, cuz it's time for him to go home. My granddaddy was a rough name, he did it cuz he had a kid on the way. He was never too much into religion. But it worked like he owed it to God He smoked since he was a little kid It was the only way he could kill the pain Then he woke one morning and said I ain't doing this no more and it was gone like a sweet Texas rain I will shine my shoes this morning Cause I'm going to a funeral They will light a rest My grandfather Cause time Him to go home love went before him, he held on for a week or so, the doctor said it was time for him, I guess his heart couldn't stay broken anymore, I will shine my shoes this morning, I'm going to the funeral There will to rest my grandfather Cause it's time for him to go home There will to rest my grandfather Cause it's time
7: him to go